Well, as I mentioned earlier on, we're continuing our series in Exodus, so please do turn to Exodus chapter 12. If you're using a church Bible, that's page 55, page 55. We'll be focusing this morning on verses from 1243 to 13, verse 16, but uh, we're going to read in from verse 40, and we're going to read verse 40 to 51 and the rest of the verses later in the service. Exodus chapter 12, reading from verse 40. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So the same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're going to read on the next part of uh, that passage in Exodus, Exodus chapter 13. Still page 55 in the church Bibles. Exodus 13, we read the first uh, 16 verses. Let's read in here together the word of God. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which He swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. 
when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Amen. Well, do turn with me, please, to that passage in Exodus. We're going to turn now to those verses, end of chapter 12, beginning of chapter 13, page 55. Remember this day. Those words from Exodus 13:3 are the keynote of this whole section uh, that we're looking at this morning. Remembrance is the heartbeat of these verses. It's repeated and it's insistent. That's why we're still where we are in this narrative. If you've been following with us uh, over the weeks in Exodus, we're not yet wandering off into the desert. You would have thought we would have been there by now. Uh, On the face of it, it's a bit of a strange section. The story's just been barreling along for a good while. We've had um, the people in slavery. We've had uh, all the events of Moses' early life. We've had the call of Moses. He's coming back. He's confronting Pharaoh. There's plague after plague after plague. Uh, And and on it goes uh, up to chapter 10 with the ninth plague. But that was back in chapter 10. Um, and, and, And it will be the next section at the end of chapter 13 before the people are really on their way. Yes, we had the exodus last time. The remarkable thing is that the exodus, when Pharaoh finally relents and lets the people go, is described in a matter of a few verses. What gets far more column inches, there's a great deal of material, both before and after the exodus, about how it's all to be commemorated in the years to come. In fact, a fair bit of of it is repeated. Some of it we looked at a few weeks ago, and it comes up again um, today. It's as if the very structure of the story, as Moses has set it out, the space given to it, the elements of repetition, is all designed to hammer these things into our memory. Because that's what's happening in the story. God wants His people to know, even as these events are unfolding, that they are to remember them forever. Remember this day. Imprint this in your minds and hold it in your hearts, He's saying. John was stressing last week how just about everything that that, that we read in the part of chapter 12 where the Exodus takes place, just about everything there is designed to demonstrate that it all represents the fulfillment of old but very much still current promises. Hundreds of years ago, God made a covenant with Abraham with spectacular promises. We need to remember that's what lies in the background here. In the face of the death-deserving rebellion of the human race, God made a way for men and women to come back into relationship with Him. He made a covenant. What were the core promises of that covenant? Well, the descendants of Abraham would be numerous and great. They would be a great nation. 
They were to have their own land. Their enemies were to be cursed, and they were to acknowledge the Lord as their God. And the Exodus represents a decisive move forward in the fulfillment of all of those promises, doesn't it? And so this morning, we're going to consider, going to consider in relation to Israel long ago and in relation to us today, three things. The remembrance of covenant salvation, what it is to be a covenant member, and what it looks like to live a covenant life. The remembrance of covenant salvation, what it is to be a covenant member, and what it looks like to live a covenant life. When I was growing up, my sister used to watch Anne of Green Gables on VHS video. If you're in Generate, I'll explain to you later what a VHS video is. As I recall, this particular adaptation lasted about 96 hours on 17 different videotapes or something. It seemed to go on forever. Uh, And for a while, my sister was completely obsessed with it. She watched it over and over and over again until finally she could, as she watched it, say the entire dialogue of all the characters along with every one of them for the whole 96 hours of it, which was probably about the only thing that could have made it all even more tiresome than it already was. Something about repetition, isn't there? Repetition serves remembrance. Advertisers know this. You you see the same adverts over and over and over again. They don't even need to be particularly good. They can even be immensely irritating as long as you remember. Go compare. But God knows this too, that repetition serves remembrance, which is why when He makes known to His people His covenant salvation, He gives them a threefold command. Remember, remember, Remember. Not quite at the 5th of November, but we've got an extra one. Remember, remember, remember. Here in this section, God gives His people three different ways to remember what He has done for them, and they're all things that are to be repeated over and over again. So, at the end of chapter 12, from verse 43, we have some more provisions about the eating of the Passover. This is to be repeated annually, indefinitely. Why? To remind you. You're to eat it indoors, verse 46. Why? to remind you that you need to stay under the protection of the blood on lintel and doorpost. You're not to break the bones. Why? To remind you that this is a perfect, flawless sacrifice. Much, much later, of course, John uh, in his gospel will recognize that full significance when Jesus, unlike most victims of crucifixion, did not have his legs broken um, to, to bring about his death because he was already dead. Not a bone was broken, says John. He says it was to fulfill Exodus twelve forty six. I have a theory. I, I didn't mention this last time, um, but I have a theory about why the Passover lamb had to be roasted. Back in chapter 12, it specifically says that the lamb is not to be eaten raw and it is not to be boiled you must roast it. That actually gives the cooking instructions. This is not because Jamie Oliver had a word with Moses about the best way to cook lamb. Now, here's my theory. I want to make it really, really clear that this is not in the text, so you can take this or leave it. Um, but but here's, here's my theory. What is one of the most powerful organs of memory in the human body? It's the nose. Have you ever smelt roast lamb? A turkey makes us think of Christmas. Roast lamb makes the Israelite think of redemption. 
So here's one way to remember this day, eat the Passover. The second is another that we already saw in chapter 12, observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, closely associated with the Passover. So verses 3 to 10 in chapter 13, uh, repeat and expand on the instruction given in chapter 12. Here's a, here's a week-long festival. You have an altered menu during the course of that week. You have holy days at the beginning and the end. Uh, and again, year after year after year, do this. Give a week of your life to this. And remember. And then thirdly, in chapter 13, consecrate the firstborn. There in two places, 13, 1 to 2 is the Lord's instruction to Moses, and then 11 to 16 is Moses passing it on to the people. Consecrate the firstborn. Every time any person or animal gives birth for the first time, do this in order that you might remember the day when the firstborn of man and beast in Israel were redeemed by the death of the Passover lamb. We'll come back to what was involved in that consecration, but this would have been happening all the time in the life of Israel, every day firstborn children and animals being consecrated to the Lord. Remember, remember, remember. All of this will be to you, he says at verse 9, as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes. It will be, verse 16, as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. These, these and other verses, you may be aware, are the, uh, the basis for the practice which continues um, in Orthodox Judaism to this day, of wearing what we call phylacteries or tefillin um, at weekday morning prayers, little leather boxes containing scrolls, uh, curled up scrolls, um, with these and other Bible verses on them. There's one worn on the forehead, you maybe remember seeing that in, in pictures, a little black box that sits here, and there's one worn on the arm, straps go around the finger and then up the arm, and it holds it here, so one on here, as if guarding the thoughts, one on here on the inside of the arm, close to the heart. You can, I guess you can see the symbolism of that, but to be honest, it kind of misses the point of this passage, doesn't it? Because Exodus, God doesn't tell His people to remember the Exodus by putting Bible verses on, on parts of their body. He, he, he says the Passover is to be that to you. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is to serve that function. The consecration of the firstborn is to bring this remembrance. These things embedded in the life of God's people and observed repeatedly are to serve as reminders. And then, of course, this remembrance, furthermore, is to be passed on through the generations. And we, we saw that a few weeks ago in relation to Passover. Back in chapter 12, verse 26, we have children asking, what does this Passover mean? And the parents are to explain its significance, and then those children in time will do the same with their own children. And now, in relation to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, look at chapter 13, verse 8. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Again, passing on one generation to the next. Consecration of the firstborn. Look at chapter 13, verse 14. In time to come, your son will ask you what this means. You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, of, of man and of animals. Therefore, therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. So you have this constant pattern of remembrance and explanation and passing on. In a sense, it all amounts to one thing. When children 
ask the question, what does all of this mean? The answer essentially is, let me tell you who you are. That's what it amounts to. Let me tell you who you are. Something which is then explained in the language of covenant salvation. This is to shape your whole worldview, your whole self-identity, your whole understanding of who God is and who you are. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, it's critically important that Christians today follow that same pattern, building into our lives the remembrance of the covenant salvation that is ours in the gospel. We should be so ordering our lives as to be reminded continually of the gospel of Christ crucified and risen. There's a reason for regular patterns of church, Bible, prayer, fellowship. These, these disciplines that we have in our lives, these things are crucial because we are forgetful. When we don't put these things before ourselves, we forget them. And, and, and when our children ask why, we respond, let me tell you who you are. And we explain it in the language of covenant salvation. Long ago, God promised that He would save a people for Himself. The whole world, just full of sinners. God said, I will, I will save a people for Myself, and you, My child, you are a part of that people. This is your privilege. By God's grace alone, you belong to that people. And so, and so we call on our children to embrace the covenant promises and to live in the light of them. So there's a kind of overview, if you like, of this section. Remember, remember, remember. But I want to focus in on a couple of parts of it. Verses 43 to 49 uh, in chapter 12 give us some more regulations for the Passover. And they show that participation in the Passover is an indication of covenant membership. And they seek to demonstrate that covenant membership must be a matter of true faith and not false assurance. We have some crystal clear teaching here, don't we, that this is a meal for Israelites. This is a meal for covenant members, for those brought into relationship with God through His covenant of grace. We begin with the presumption that no foreigner shall eat of it, verse 43, and neither shall a temporary hired servant. They're not Israelites. Why, why is that? Is it because God is racist? No. Is it because He's narrow-minded? No. They're simply not those who were redeemed by the Passover lamb. Since this is a meal that signifies fellowship within God's people, and ultimately fellowship with God Himself, it should only be eaten by those who have been brought into restored fellowship with Him. It makes no sense, does it, for someone who knows nothing of the grace of salvation to participate in a meal that celebrates salvation. That would only breed a false assurance of God's favor. Oh, I've come along, I've taken the Passover, I'm okay. Whereas excluding such a person highlights to them the fact that they need to come to God. They need to put their trust in Him. And, and here in these same verses, it's immediately made crystal clear that anyone can take part in this covenant meal if they first embrace covenant membership. Turns out there are two ways to become a member of the covenant. It can happen by birth, as children are brought in under the umbrella of a covenant family, or it can happen by conversion, as outsiders come to profess faith in the God of Israel. So, the foreigner, the servant, the stranger, all are welcome to the covenant meal if 
they demonstrate by the covenant sign of circumcision that they have embraced the covenant promises. Where that happens, even the foreigner, the outsider, whoever, shall be as a native of the land, verse 48. There will be no distinction. There will be one law, 49, for the native and for the stranger, because everyone's in the same position before God. Sinners saved by grace. It doesn't actually matter if you were born into the church and it's all you've ever known all your days, or if you lived a life of goodness knows what kind of sin, and, and then came to the Lord later in life. We're, we're all in the same position. We're sinners saved by grace. There is one law for all. And, and that makes perfect sense here, because remember that part of the original covenant promise to Abraham was that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. There's nothing narrow about the covenant of God. Absolutely the opposite. It's a way by which God opens up relationship with him to the whole wide world. So the covenant people eat the covenant meal, and notice it's a positive obligation. Look at verse 47. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. This is not a take it or leave it kind of a thing. It's a commandment. Failure to do this would be disobedience. Now, we noted a few weeks back there are, there are very direct parallels, aren't there, between the Passover and the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a fulfillment of the Passover. It was at a Passover meal that Jesus took bread and said, this is my body. Took wine and said, this is my blood. This is the new covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you. It's a commandment. On the other hand, we also need to be clear that this Lord's Supper is a meal for covenant members. And it's the responsibility of church leaders to ensure as far as possible that it's an expression of true faith rather than a source of false assurance. It's become that far too often, hasn't it, in our culture. We, we go from one extreme to the other. In certain parts of our country, people don't take communion because they're not good enough, which is to completely miss the point. But, but so often our practice has swung to the other extreme. People think they're okay with God because they took communion. This is to be the expression of true faith. We're to examine ourselves before we come to the table. And there is given to the church a responsibility to ensure the right administration of the sacraments. I want to address something here that sometimes causes a little bit of confusion. You'll be aware that when we share in the Lord's Supper, I always say something about who should and should not be participating in it. I read in one American commentary that the old Scottish Presbyterians used to speak about fencing the table, which I guess makes me an old Scottish Presbyterian. How do we do that? How do we guard the table? Well, this is what's often not understood. It's called church membership. Because that's actually what membership really is. Yes, there's, there's an important aspect in membership, formal membership, of publicly committing to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. But, but core to what's happening when the elders admit someone to membership is that on the basis of a credible profession of faith, they are admitting them to the Lord's Supper. We also welcome to the table visitors who are members elsewhere, but, but that's the core significance of membership, which is also why the termination of membership in that kind of worst-case scenario of church discipline is called excommunication. Excommunication doesn't mean that everybody stops talking to you. 
Excommunication means that you may no longer communicate. In the old-fashioned sense of that word, you may no longer take communion. Church membership admits you to the table. Excommunication excludes you from the table. Where membership is withdrawn, admission to the Lord's Supper is withdrawn. And so we place boundaries, albeit verbal ones, around the table. This is a covenant meal for covenant members. And we warn those who are not covenant members that they should not take part in this meal. Let me, let me read you from one commentary. Um, this is how one Presbyterian minister puts it. The purpose of giving such a warning is not to keep people away from Christ, but to make it clear that the only way to receive salvation is to come to Him in faith. We cannot have communion with Christ unless we have faith in His blood. Telling people this helps clarify their spiritual condition. When a minister draws the line between those who are inside and those who are outside the church, it helps people who have not yet made a commitment to Christ to recognize that they are not yet saved. I can't remember who who it was. Someone has said that the task of a minister is to is to help people who are in Christ to understand that they are in Christ. Understand what that means for you. And to help people who are not in Christ to see that they are not in Christ and to see what that means for them. The purpose of that distinction, those who are invited to the table and those who are, who are held at arm's length, and they are, is, is, is not a negative purpose. It's a positive one. You need to know what you need to do. And you need to not have false assurance when you don't have true faith. Exodus 12 reminds us that these covenant meals are for believers, but it also reminds us that all people everywhere are invited to repent and believe, to come to know the blessings of the covenant and then to receive this precious covenant sign, because that's what it is. I don't have time to do justice to it. We'll talk about it just a little bit when we come to the Lord's Supper later, but we we must learn to approach it as a treasured privilege. Here is something that we do, and we do it repeatedly, and we explain what we're doing, and all of this, so that the glorious good news of the gospel will be imprinted on our minds and in our hearts. will be held close to us. May Baptism does this too, even if your baptism was a long time ago. May baptism and the Lord's Supper be to you as if the things of the gospel were written across your forehead every morning when you look in the bathroom mirror. May they be to you as if the things of the gospel were written on your hand every time you see your own hand during the day. These things serve us to to bring remembrance. Through them, we remember Christ We remember all that is ours in Him, and we remember the day when at Calvary our sins were placed on Him, and He bore them away forever. Just picture Him there at Calvary saying to you, remember this day. Picture Him before the empty tomb and all the glory of His resurrection. Remember this day. So organize your life as to bring these things to remembrance. So important. Covenant membership is a glorious privilege, and the covenant signs are glorious gifts. 
But there's one last uh, great emphasis in these verses that I want to finish with. You've seen the covenant salvation that God provided um, in the Exodus and then ultimately in Christ. We've seen the covenant membership by which we take hold of the promises of God and commemorate His saving acts, Passover and Lord's Supper. And now we see the covenant life to which God calls us as His people in which He says to us, you belong to me. We're going to jump over um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread because we looked at it the last time. I'm going to turn to the section on the consecration of the firstborn. So, the instruction comes to Moses, 13, 1 to 2, and then he passes it on. We get more detail of it in verses 11 to 16. I said earlier that repetition serves remembrance. If you want the whole sermon in six words, here it is. Repetition serves remembrance. Remembrance serves reverence. Remembrance serves reverence. The whole point of remembrance is that we might keep covenant with God. God doesn't give His people all these reminders just to preserve wonderful memories in the past so that Israelites in their dotage can, you know, sit in their armchair before the fire, cradling the grandchildren and and, and thinking about all the great things of days long gone. Do these things so that your salvation might be forever on your mind and forever on your heart, and 13 verse 9, forever on your lips. To have the law of God in your mouth or on your lips means that it's being regularly remembered and spoken of and obeyed. And I think the consecration of the firstborn does have a particular significance in this. To to consecrate means to set apart as holy. Holy means belonging to God. So, something is being set apart as belonging completely to God. The practice was that the firstborn males of animals suitable for sacrifice were sacrificed. They would be the Lord's, it says. That's a, that's a way of saying they were killed in sacrifice before the Lord. Certain other animals, like donkeys, did you wonder why the donkey got a special mention in this text? Certain other animals, like donkeys, were considered unclean and therefore unsuitable for sacrifice. So, if you're the donkey, then you had to bring a lamb in place of the donkey. And then your children come into the same category as the donkeys. They also need to be redeemed. Um, The uh, end of verse 13, we're not actually told how the children were redeemed. We think later it became a payment of money, um, but possibly uh, a lamb also offered in their place at this stage. All of this did two things. It, It reminded the people that everything belongs to God because He's the creator of all. God must be recognized as the giver of life and of every good gift. And just as you would bring the first and best of your harvest or your livestock to the Lord to acknowledge that He has given to you all that you have, so you should bring the first of your children to be specially consecrated to Him. So, by creation, God owns all that you have. But secondly, of course, this is a reminder of the redemption of the firstborn son on the night of Passover. Apart from the Passover lamb sacrificed, the firstborn sons of Israel would have died when the tenth plague came. But God made a way through the shedding of sacrificial blood to redeem them. And for these reasons, the the firstborn sons were set apart for God. Do you remember uh, near the beginning of Luke's gospel, um, Jesus Jesus is born in Bethlehem, and his parents take him from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. It's in Luke 2. 
the, the section where they meet Simeon and they meet Anna. It's a lovely section. They meet, they, meet, they meet them at the temple. Why did they take Jesus to the temple? Luke says, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. They, they, they brought Jesus himself to the temple in obedience to Exodus 13. Now, let me return to the question that we started with. Why is there such a strong and long emphasis on this here? Why interrupt this narrative of dramatic rescue, urgent departure from Egypt? It's all happening just like this. But, but Moses, as he's telling the story, just, just hits pause, gives us a huge bit of narrative before, huge bit of narrative afterwards. Why, why all of this? Because this section is a crucial hinge we're seeing here a principle which will be, uh, it, will, it will find its outworking in the whole of the rest of the book of Exodus and, and a great deal more beyond as well, but it's being hammered home here. This is the principle, you belong to God. Simple as that, you belong to God. What we are not to conclude from the consecration of the firstborn is that God gets the firstborn and then He's had His lot and we've got the rest. No, the firstborn in these cultures had a particular significance. And the point of consecrating the firstborn is that it symbolizes that God owns everything. We acknowledge that all things come from Him. He's saying to His people, you belong to Me. Remember this, by creation and now by redemption also. I own you twice over. You belong to Me. You're Mine. And what we need to see is that our creation by God and our redemption by God have enormous consequences for our everyday lives. Israelites, what was the purpose of your redemption from Egypt? What did God say from the very beginning? Let my people go that they may worship me, that they may serve me. That's the point. It wasn't just that oh, it'd be nice to give them a nicer place to live, better living conditions. No. They were taken from the cruel slavery of Pharaoh in order that they might become the glad servants of God. Now, Christians, what's the purpose of your redemption from sin and death and hell? Is it to give you a warm feeling in your heart? Is it to give you peace when you think about death? Is it to give you a sense of purpose in your life? Well, yes, it is all of these things. These are all wonderful blessings. But ultimately, the purpose is that you might be a holy nation, a people for His possession, and a people to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. The purpose is that you might, in the mercies, in light of the mercies of God, offer up your bodies as living sacrifices to Him, holy and acceptable to Him. The purpose is that those who were once slaves to sin might become obedient from the heart to the God who redeemed them. Redemption cannot be separated from consecration. He has bought us, and we are His. We belong to Him, lock, stock, and barrel. We are called to be His holy people and to demonstrate that in holiness of life. Let me give you one example of how this works out in the New Testament. When Paul writes to the church in Corinth, remember the church in Corinth? We sometimes think the New Testament church, everything was perfect in the New Testament church. Just go and read 1 Corinthians. 
New Testament church there embroiled in sexual immorality, horribly so. And on what basis does Paul appeal to them to change their ways? This is what he says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You don't belong to you. You belong to him. Your body is not yours to do with as you please. It belongs to him. The purpose of our redemption in the end is worship. We exist to glorify God and enjoy him forever, and to that end, God has saved us. Called us into his service as his people. If we if we think that we can be redeemed by God without then living our lives for Him, we're kidding ourselves. We all, need to, we all need to hear that, but let me say that especially to the teenagers amongst us here in Generate, because your battle is hard, okay? I know this. Your battle is hard, but you need to hear this. You need to hear now the call to holiness of life. Holiness is not something for adults. Holiness is not something for old people. Holiness is not something for ministers and missionaries and some kind of special class of other people out there. Holiness is for you. It's the calling on your life. And now is the time. Do not waste the years. Do not wander and waste half your life. Even if you later come back, just don't do it. Don't go there. You don't even know if you'll come back because your heart will harden. Exodus teaches us nothing else. It teaches us that. Decide now. This is going to be all for Christ. Because that's what life is for. And that's what life is for if you're 11. Or if you're 14. Or if you're 16. Or if you're 102. All of life for Christ all sorts of practical applications to this. You know, you're, you're at school. Someone comes over to show, something, show you something on their phone, and you know perfectly well the kind of things that this lad looks at on his phone. What do you do at that point? I belong to Christ. I belong to Christ. I was bought with a price that I might not live for self, but for Him. And so I will glorify God with my mind and with my body. Or, or you're in a family situation or a work situation, somebody says something hurtful and you just have this, this brilliantly cutting reply. It's right there on the tip of your tongue. I belong to Christ. I am not my own. Or you face hard circumstances, family problems, illness, and you're tempted to distrust. You're just tempted to despair. I belong to Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A deep understanding that we belong to God is what changes us. Nothing else does. 
one of our what we call subordinate standards as a church. So underneath the Bible, always subject to the Bible, we have certain documents which we believe are helpful, like the Westminster Confession of Faith. But one of them is called the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a Reformation-era question-and-answer document produced in Germany in 1563. Um, first question-and-answer serve as a summary of the whole thing. This is on, on the sheet there. I've also put it on the screen um, just so that you can follow this. It's on the sheet so that you can take it away. Question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And this is the answer, that I with body and soul in life and in death am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully paid for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life, and, listen to this, makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Where does that comfort and hope and new life come from? Only one place. Only on a hill outside Jerusalem one day, 2,000 years ago. And that's why Jesus gathered his people around a table. And he ate with them and he drank with them. And with earnest and solemn terms, he said to them, Remember this day. Remember it forever until I come. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you might, in your mercy towards us, in your grace, that you might do to us this rich and good work of imprinting upon our minds and our hearts that we belong to you we belong to the one who formed us in love, who made each one of us, creating us unique, creating us to be who we are. We belong to you by right of creation. And now we belong to you by right of redemption. We are not our own. We have been bought and bought with a terrible price. Father, imprint these things upon our hearts, we pray. And may we go from this place as those who belong to you. And may that not just be the, the, the fervor of a moment, but may it be the passion of a lifetime. We are yours, and we will live for you. Help us, we pray, to know and live by these things to your glory. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.